right, welcome back. Um, this will be week four of the Public Problems 101 course. Tonight we have a couple of very interesting guests, uh, Ann Bowman and Rob Greer. And so in a moment we'll get to introducing them. But before we got there, before we get there, I'd like to give it sort of uh, some beginning of class information um, to get us started. So again, this is week four. Next week will be the last week of the course. Um, next week, We'll, I will be the, uh, we won't have any guests. We'll be working through a lecture that I'm going to give on artificial intelligence, governance, and risk. And so we'll spend some time, I'll spend some time talking about that with you. And then we'll have some Q&A, <clears throat> excuse me, some Q&A throughout. So that'll be, um, that'll be next week. We're going to do it at 8 p.m. Um, Eastern, 7 p.m. Central. Um, and then we'll wrap down the 101 course. So um, all right, so tonight we have two guests that I mentioned, Ann Bowman and Rob Greer. I'm going to bring them in. Um, I work with both of them at the Bush School and am missing them this semester while I'm away on leave from courses. So let's bring them in and let you meet both of them, and we'll do some uh, – you, you can meet them. So I'm going to bring in Ann first. Take her just a second to come in. Good evening. Uh, hi there, Ann. Your name popped up wrong. I want you to be Maria for some reason tonight. So I'm fixing That's that. Facebook thing. Ah, got it. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm going to bring in Rob now. All right, welcome, Rob. Hello, welcome. Thank you. All right. Um, okay, so I think we'll just jump right into it. What I thought we might do is start with some background information on cities. So the topics tonight are cities and sustainability. Um, this this week for the course was built up uh, off of a podcast I did with Kent, another one of our coworkers. And we focused a lot on sustainability in that podcast. But what we didn't really focus on as much is, some, is a background on cities and the city context. And so I thought we might do a little bit of that tonight to kind of set the stage for anyone who had listened to that podcast, got the sustainability pieces about cities and how some of the trade-offs between growth and sustainability but didn't really get into um, the specifics of cities' issues, cities' governance, what it's like uh, to be a city, particularly in the U.S. Um, so I thought we might start there. So I thought, Anne, maybe if you could take this first one, if that's all right with you, just talking a little bit broadly about the federalism structure in the U.S. and how cities in particular and local governments more broadly fit into that picture and what kind of then constraints it uh, – it, uh, it leaves them with? Certainly. I guess the, the first place I'd start is with local governments as creatures of their state. In other words, the U.S. Constitution doesn't even mention local governments. It specifically focuses on the national government and state governments. So it's up to each state to design its system of local governments however it wishes to do so. And there's tremendous variation uh, across the 50 states. And I think the other sort of introductory comment I'd make is that um, officially, legally, there are five types of local governments. And I know we're going to be focusing on cities or municipalities uh, tonight, but there are also county governments, there are school districts, there are special districts, and then in some states, towns and townships. And each of these types of local governments uh, has, a, has a role to play. And uh, as a consequence, as I mentioned earlier, you do get variation across the states and you do get some, uh, the public itself has interesting choices about whether they wish to live inside a city, a city limit 
uh, or live in a county area, uh, which school district they may want to select uh, for for uh, the, with regard to their location, uh, the package of, of special districts and the offerings they provide. And so it's a uh, um, ultimately, there are about 90,000 units of local government in this country, which some might say were awash in local governments. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly more than uh, than you might think on initial glance. And that includes the local school districts, the townships. That's the whole gamut, right? Yes. Yes. And so the- also uh, jump in and just add that in terms of trend, um, the number of school districts uh what has as increased very slightly or, or gone down um, over the last 20 or 30 years. Cities have increased slightly, um, but special districts, the number of special districts has increased at a much higher rate. And uh, so special districts make up the majority of all local governments, at least as defined by the U.S. Census at this point. Just uh, on that real quick, Rob, do you know, I know you do some stuff on special districts. What do those special districts look like? I imagine... Most people don't know what a special district or might be aware of special districts, but not their different broad purposes. So what what are these special districts that we're seeing a lot of growth in just as one kind of departure from cities? Yeah, so that's actually kind of a hard question to answer because they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and they have a wide range of features and a wide range of, um, of autonomy um, from state to state and from district type to district type. So one frequent uh, type of special district that we see around Texas would be something like a municipal utility district that would be responsible for delivering water or wastewater services or a combination of both. Um, Another common type around here would be fire districts. Uh, So rather than having a municipal fire department or in addition to a municipal fire department, you would have a special district that would just be in charge of fire services. In general, these are districts that focus on one or a limited set of services that would traditionally, or what we might think of traditionally as being uh, carried out by a city or county government, some sort of general purpose local government. Those single or limited services are spun off into a separate sort of um, uh, legal entity, political entity, and the range of autonomy they have can be quite large. Some of them have their own taxing power, their own debt issuing authority. Others do not. Others rely on transfers from a city or state or county government. Uh, Others do not. So uh, it can can really uh, vary quite quite dramatically. Um, And the services they can provide go from run-of-the-mill sort of core services like fire and water to more sort of um, abstract or exotic services like mosquito control or something like that. So they they, they go a real wide uh, range. Exactly, yeah. Um, And they can also they can also uh, span multiple jurisdictions. So um, you can have one district that would cover several cities or part of one city and part of another city or an entire county um, or across several counties. So it can uh, vary geographically as well. That sounds like it can also create some uh, local government challenges as these districts that might do something like water or electricity and across different types of local government entities. I mean, is that something that is uh, is known to be kind of an issue? It does increase sort of complexity of delivering services and coordinating services across different jurisdiction types. Uh, it also 
uh, can sometimes create a transparency issue where citizens don't actually know who's in charge of the services that, um, that are being delivered or who should be accountable. Uh, so some of these districts may have elected boards. Some of them may be appointed. Uh, citizens often don't know, though, that their water is not being delivered by the city. It's being delivered by a, a, a MUD, as we say, municipal utility district, or the um, same for fire or anything else. And so accountability can sometimes be an issue about, about who should be accountable, who do the citizens think is accountable, um, and how do we hold various officials uh, accountable if, if something breaks down. Great. Thanks. Um, yeah, and I would, let me just add to that while we're talking about special okay. districts. Um, the, the, one of the other, the, the issue, and it's, it, it was uh, uh, clear in what Rob was saying as well, is, is the layering of these governments on top of each other. So you could live in a city and be served by seven or eight or 12 or 15 or 30 uh, different special districts. And so there's a library district that spans two counties and a beachfront erosion control district that spans uh, only part of a county. But, but the idea is there's this tremendous amount of fragmentation and that does lead to the complexity that, uh, that, that Rob was referring to and, and, a, and a, a challenge of fixing accountability in one government versus another for these various services. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it's hard enough for the average busy American to keep up who their, their, their state representatives are, the state senators, the state congress uh, men and women, the governors, um, and keep up with their federal representatives and then keep up with their county uh, commissioners and their city mayors, not to mention trying to keep up with uh, special districts. I mean, I don't in what any of the places I've lived, I don't know, even as someone who studies public administration would not have been aware of all the special districts I was in. Um, and so it, it does seem to raise really challenging questions for accountability. I remember that was something that uh, come up in the John Oliver segment uh, with special districts, which is covers does a really nice job, I think, of laying out some basic uh, basic special basic special district issues as well. Um, and I wanted to come back to the uh, one of the things you mentioned about cities being creatures of states, and I was wondering if you could just give us a couple different uh, comparisons of what that what the different types of cities can look like. I know there are different types of things like home rule and some other ways that sort of affect uh, the, the legal, uh, the legal availability or legal tools available to a city. I mean, are there are a couple of things maybe off the top of your head that make them different from say Texas to maybe some other state you lived in for a little while, like South Carolina or um, is there anything that might be just, might highlight how cities can vary a lot from state to state? Yeah, sure. I mean, and, and even within a state, cities can vary sometimes based on population size. They classify cities by, by size, and the larger the city, the greater the power. Uh, the, the most fundamental thing is is the power that the state gives its local governments, or in this case, cities, uh, via home rule. Um, there's this, this concept called Dillon's Rule, in which local governments, as creatures of their state, have only the powers the state government gives them. However, juxtaposed with that is this concept of home rule, which in effect is a little like local self-government. And there's this tension between the amount of power uh, and authority that a state grants its, its cities uh, and, and um, whether they can function effectively with that grant of power, because ultimately the state legislature can step in and preempt local governments. Uh, for example, you saw that recently with plastic bag bans, that a number of cities 
uh, are banning disposal, uh, the, the disposable plastic bags. States are stepping in and saying, wait a minute, uh, we want to have the power to do that. And right now we're prohibiting you from doing that. So that example from, oh, sorry. Is it, is it another example from Texas is the hydraulic fracturing, right? Where right, some exactly. local yeah. governments will look at it and the state overturn that. Right. Well, I mean, the question is, who has who has jurisdiction over making that decision or the power to make that decision? So you have the voters of Denton, Texas, deciding they don't want fracking uh, within their city limits. And then you have the state of Texas coming back and saying you don't have the power to do that. So that's a good example of uh, this tension between what local governments, the powers they have and, and then what states want to do. States would argue we need to have uniform rules across every jurisdiction in the state. Local governments would say we vary in our preferences, what citizens want. Therefore, to be responsive to our citizenry, we should have the power to enact the laws that fit or the, the, the ordinances that fit our jurisdiction. So, so this tension between home rule, you know, the, the, the local self-government and what states want to do is the most fundamental, I guess, uh, I would probably argue. But another, I think, uh, useful uh, way of, of kind of thinking and differentiating is the structure of local government, where the, whether you have a, a mayor-led system with a strong mayor and elected council uh, versus having a council manager form of government where the mayor is simply a member of the council and you, you hire a city manager, a professional city manager, uh, to administer uh, city government. That's another kind of fundamental distinction uh, between, uh, between cities. And, and that, ha that seems to have consequences. Then there are any number of, of other things we could talk about, like uh, whether you elect your, council, your city council members from districts or in an at-large system or a mixed system, there's variation on that. The size of the council, um, and um, uh, it's 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 the kind of thing that 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 ultimately has been shown to matter. Structures do seem to affect public policy and and responsiveness of local governments. So it's something that I would argue we all need to pay um, probably a little more attention to. Yeah, that, I want to I want to um, hit on one other piece. I think uh, about cities, and I think uh, having a basic background in would be useful. Uh, but, but before we move on to that, I, I think this idea of structure is something that I want to make sure we get back to and explore a little further, particularly when we start talking about some of the issues uh, cities face, because my assumption is it might not be immediately clear why the structure of the local city government uh, matters for the city. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people might have intuition for that, but it, a lot of people might not. So I want to make sure that we uh, circle back to that before we, before we do that. I think another piece that might be worth mentioning real quick is how cities pay for themselves and the way, and that's influenced by structure um, as well and the tools they have probably based on the home rule as, as well. But I was wondering, Rob, uh, I know local finance is a piece um, that you do a lot with. What kind of different tools do cities have to fund themselves and does that is that sort of like Anne was mentioning as well? Or is that a creature of uh, of the states as well? Is there a lot of variation, or do cities have pretty much the same two or three tools? Do states mess with what cities can do? Can you give me a little bit of the background on that from the finance side? Sure. So the uh, sort of majority, overwhelming majority of cities rely on the property tax to fund their operations, uh, although they have been increasingly relying on the sales tax, especially in southern states like Texas. Uh, we have cities that, that rely on the sales tax uh, as well as the property tax. Those are our two major tax 
tax types. Uh, they come in various shapes and sizes, but those broad categories, property tax, uh, real property uh, houses and, and land and things, um, along with, with sales tax, retail sales tax, is uh, are the two main pillars. Um, one of the growing trends has been the use of fees. So as states restrict the amount that local governments can raise via property and sales tax, uh, cities have to get a little creative um, in how they generate revenue and monetize various services. And when they do that, they usually do it in the form of user fees or user charges, transaction costs, things like that. Um, and so, sorry, I, I'm getting messages. Okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so somebody in here is asking messages and I just popped up. Um, Oh, yeah, I was just telling the students that they could, or the viewers, that they could ask questions throughout. So I can I can post little messages out. So I was I think I believe it was probably me distracting you mid sentence. Okay, <laughs> I didn't know. I was I was trying to react anyway. Um, so, uh, but to tie it into what Ann was talking about, uh, states are very much involved, and there is a back and forth tug of war between cities uh, and the states about how restrictive the states are in trying to uh, limit the amount that can be raised through various taxes uh, by their local governments and the amount that they can spend on those. Sometimes we call those tax and expenditure limitations or TELS, um, and it also extends to uh, their debt as well, how much debt they can take out, how much debt relative to the amount of property taxes they can raise or, or any such uh, sort of combination of those. Uh, and so lots, some states are very restrictive in what they allow their cities to do in, in generating revenues or increasing the property tax rate from year to year, as an example. Um, and others are a little bit more hands-off and they allow their, their cities more flexibility. It's actually one of the um, issues, ongoing issues right now in Texas. Um, one proposal on the table is to limit uh, the property tax, city property taxes. Um, and so that's something that we're sort of keeping an eye on. Um, but every not every state, a majority of states, or I think it's about 30 at this point, have some form of a tax and expenditure limitation on their cities that restrict the amount that they can raise, um, usually in regard to the property tax, um, and in some cases restrict the amount that they can spend. So the kind of broad takeaway would be that with finances, uh, cities are remain creatures of the state and that they rely a lot on property tax, uh, for example, but their states vary on how much they limit that and what other types of tools that the cities have. Uh, I think so. Um, with the one caveat that the property tax um, is not levied at the state level um, in a lot of states. It is at, at some states, but, but not a lot. And so the use of the property tax by local governments is an element of autonomy. They, it gives them um, the ability to raise revenue and then spend it as those voters would see fit or as uh, best uses. Um, and so the state's role in a lot of cases, again, not all, but a lot of cases is just trying to restrict the amount that those cities can raise via the property tax. Um, um, and in some more extreme cases, what they can spend that money on. Um, but one of the advantages of the property tax from a local government perspective is that it gives them some autonomy um, from the state. They're not relying on um, state income tax revenue that's then passed back down to the, the cities, as an example. Yeah, let me just, let me just interject one other thing about, uh, about and, and Rob, you may want to chime in on this as well, about 
uh, cities having various enterprises, revenue generating enterprises. So cities may be uh, 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 participants in, let's say, something like a, a stadium, a sports stadium of some kind and generate revenue from that. Or cities may uh, have their own electric utility systems and uh, generate revenue as well from that. And there's kind of an interesting tension as to how much and in what kinds of enterprises cities should be involved in. I remember, you know, years ago teaching a, a local government class and talking about the trend in California at the time, which was for cities to take uh, uh, positions in uh, in local malls to actually have a, a revenue stream um, uh, because they were they were very small partners in a local mall, maybe a 1% partner, let's say, or a 2% partner. And at the time, it was very innovative and clever for cities to be doing this. Now, in this era of malls uh, beginning to shut down and, and become less important in, 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 retail, uh, in retail sales, um, that doesn't look quite as, uh, quite as smart. So it's an interesting question about how far cities should go in engaging in creative revenue raising strategies given uh, some of the uncertainty that's out there and, and ultimately this notion that they are sort of the uh, uh, protectors of the public purse and uh, taxpayer dollars and those sorts of things. So there's, an, so there's an interesting tension there between, again, creative revenue raising and being prudent um, that I think is kind of interesting. Abs no, that's absolutely right. Um, I was speaking more towards uh, sort of what we would call the general fund, right? Yeah. General taxes. Um, but you're absolutely right that, that cities rely on enterprise funds, uh, the biggest one being utilities, right? Not just a, a municipal electric, but also municipal water, um, the parks and recs departments and how sort of uh, solvent that should be as a standalone enterprise and how much should be subsidized by other types of, of general taxes. Um, in some really fortunate cases for cities, they're able to generate enough revenue from their utility companies to then subsidize their general funds. Um, and and or fund some other types of capital improvement projects for their parks or anything like that. Um, and uh, and so it goes to sort of a an interesting sort of priority and uh, and fiscal management type question is is that appropriate? Should we uh, be doing that or should we just be lowering the price of water or electricity? Uh, and so it's uh, there, there's a lot of sort of tension there between uh, citizens and the city and the electric company and sort of what the best use of those revenues are and how that affects prices. It's interesting to think, I mean, uh, that cities aren't just kind of running their general revenue budget and collecting property taxes and user fees. And in a lot of ways they function like a, like a corporation that has several sub entities that, um, that run and generate their own sorts of revenue and have to be kind of sufficient or managed differently. I mean, is that kind of how these enterprise funds work? Well, not, not exactly. I mean, a little bit. Uh, so the enterprise funds are set up as business-like activities. It's a different type of fund. We call it a, a proprietary fund. That's a business-like activity. And they are held to a different accounting standard. They, uh, they do manage their finances more like a private corporation would manage their their, their finances. Um, but, uh, and, and you're, you're right that in some cases when these operations are spun off into their own entities, like we were talking about for special districts, then it does sort of become a uh, sort of 
a subsidiary type uh, arrangement where you have a city and you have a special district and there's some financial arrangement between those two and one is sort of being created and partially managed by the other. Um, so, so it's not sort of uh, out of the realm type uh, uh, metaphor, but we still have the general fund is, is, is still usually the largest fund by, by a pretty wide margin. Um, we still don't have voluntary uh, transaction exchanges, right? You don't voluntarily pay your property taxes. You pay your property taxes because uh, if you don't, the city's going to take your house, right? So this is not this is not like going to the store and buying a laptop, right? Uh, you're, it's not mutually beneficial. You don't have any say in the matter, right? You either you either pay the taxes or you lose the house, right? So it's it's uh, it's not exactly. Um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't extend the metaphor too far in, in how much they're being run like businesses. Good. Um, we have a question. Of, uh, I want to move back to the structure stuff and other city issues. But we have a question about Texas and tax reform. So uh, I'm going to and revenue caps from one of our students from the Bush School, actually, Neil Wendell. Neil says, as the Texas legislature and governor move to restrict cities' revenue streams through property tax reform and revenue caps, do you foresee a shift towards special districts to provide core services? Would either of you like to tackle that one? Uh, the answer is is yes. Yes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but with the caveat is it is entirely in the design and language of the legislature. So the state could easily include special districts in the caps. Um, they could include, uh, you know, they could aggregate it up to the county, for example, um, and provide the caps at the county level. And so it wouldn't matter if you spun it off because it would all be aggregated together. Um, based on what we know from other states, they're unlikely to do that. Special districts are often left out of, of legislation that applies to more general purpose uh, local governments. And that's why they're attractive for local officials to use as a tool to sort of uh, um, circumvent state uh, regulation. And we know that from uh, several studies on, on debt limits and how uh, special districts can be used to get around state debt limits. And so I would expect that the same thing could happen in the case of tax and expenditure limitations. Um, thank you. All right, and I wanna jump back to some, to some of your comments on structure. Mm -hmm. um, Talk me through why the political structure matters for a city and the governance structure, and then if there are other things that you mean by a city structure that you think are important for people who are thinking about cities and city management. The one of the the important um, uh, developments in in uh, city government was this uh, movement called the reform movement, and what it aimed to do was. Uh, minimize the amount of um, uh, political party activity and perceived corruption, in some cases actual corruption, in local governments uh, during the, um, the late 19th, early 20th century. So the reform movement set about to make, as the, kind of thinking about the phrase you were using uh, earlier, to make city government run more like a business. That was at least the, the, the notion. Um, and so a number of structural changes were made. These include moving to an at-large system for electing uh, city council members, so you run city-wide rather than specific geographic districts, uh, adding a city manager to the mix, to the structure of, of city government, um, a hired professional who um, uh, wasn't beholden to politicians necessarily, but could uh, um, uh, 
act in a way that made technical um, sense. Uh, this person would be an expert. Uh, another change was to shorten the ballot. Um, another change was to add civil service reform um, and go to nonpartisan elections. So again, these, these structural changes really um, uh, had an impact on the way local government operated. So a completely reformed local government is supposed to be less political. The argument being, uh, since, since local governments are all about service delivery, there's no Republican or Democratic way to pave a street. There's only, you know, the best way to pave a street, right? The most expert way to pave a street. So you don't really need politics uh, in the mix. Now, this, this is the earliest 20, early 20th century, and so a lot of Sunbelt cities that developed during this time period uh, actually adopted the reform structures and do have city managers and nonpartisan elections and, and at-large elections of city council members and have a strong civil service and a, a relatively short ballot. But a lot of the cities, uh, larger cities in the Northeast, never really adopted much of the reform movement and have a different structure with a strong mayor. And the argument is with a strong mayor, there's a political leader that the citizens can hold accountable for what goes on in city government. With the reform structure, you have the city manager, and the city manager is the person who hires the department heads and really runs the day-to-day -day operations of city government. And the point is that, again, that, that hired expert, that professional, will do a technically better and in, in, in the expectation is more efficient job. However, there's a, there's a concern about accountability. Voters can't vote that city manager out of office if he or she is not performing uh, effectively, it's up to the council. The, the manager works at the, uh, at the pleasure of the council. So the council would have to make that decision. So there's a sense that there's a buffer between what the, the, the citizenry and, and ultimately um, uh, decisions that are made in, uh, in city government. And that buffer is that city manager. The, the, the alternative form, the, unre the, the unreformed uh, system of government is, is, tends to be a much more politicized form with a strong mayor who is the executive leader of the city. This mayor functions similarly to a governor uh, in, in the state context, so with the power to veto, is not a member of the city council, uh, runs the executive uh, branch, uh, the executive side of local government. And the argument is there that, that the, the voters can hold this uh, individual accountable for the performance of city government. And as a consequence there, there's a, there's a sense that that is a more democratic, with a small d, a more democratic and responsive form of local government. And so, you know, research has been done on this question, especially with at-large, you know, you, you run for the city at-large for, for a council seat at-large, you're voted on by all, uh, all the voters, all the citizenry who, who are participating in the election versus running from specific geographic districts where you represent the people in this specific uh, district as a collection of neighborhoods. Um, there's been some research that's been done. There's, there's, you know, the, the initial work suggested that, that yes, with the city manager form, you were getting a more professionalized government. Some of that research has been challenged more recently. And the argument again is you're going to get more responsive government with uh, a more politicized system or structure of, of city government. There's some real tensions there between who has the power to make decisions and how that, who can check that power. Sure. And is the types of power that a city manager has, is it in general similar to the strong mayor? Is, it, is the big difference who they're accountable to? Or is there, is there pretty significant differences in the amount of power one person has? 
yeah, the, the, the check on the city manager is the city council. So an engaged city council uh, uh, can, can, can keep a, a, you know, the mayor, the, the manager on a short leash. Uh, but typically what happens is members of the council come and go. The manager may stay for a longer period and the manager really does become kind of the um, uh, not only the expert, but but in some in some places, uh, a bit of a, a, a power broker, uh, one could say um, it's. I mean, that's 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 really a, an, an interesting question about uh, about control and responsiveness and accountability and all these these values that we have uh, for local government. The um, it's, it's an interesting question. You think about a place like New York City with Bill de Blasio, the mayor, who's a strong mayor, right? And you think what, when there's a crisis in New York City, who do you turn to? You turn to the mayor. But in some of these other cities with a more, again, this more professionalized government, you wouldn't necessarily turn to the mayor to solve the problem. You would turn to the manager to do so. And so it, it really is just a different structure. I mean, ultimately, people are still getting services delivered to them. They're still paying a price and taxes for those services. But the question is, which structure seems to be more responsive? So yeah, I'll, I'll just add uh, just briefly that on top of the structure for um, uh, strong mayor or, or council manager form, um, there can be institutional uh, constraints put in place to depoliticize certain types of government activities. Uh, for example, um, having a certified tax role or having an independent tax assessor. Um, you can have a strong mayor that has to have their tax role certified uh, or have an independent tax assessor um, come up with the sort of uh, total amount of, of property taxes that could be available uh, to that to that government uh, the same way you would if, if you had a council manager form of government. The reason for that is there could be political pressures put on a budget office or finance office to sort of inflate or deflate the numbers to say what their revenue projections would be for any given year. And to prevent that from happening, you could remove that from the city's um, uh, role and put it into an independent authority that has no sort of um, leanings one way or the other politically uh, for that for that situation. And so again, you can do that. Uh, you can have that system in place like we do in Texas, whether or not you have a, a strong mayor or, or a council manager. So so you can sort of depoliticize certain types of activities even uh, beyond the sort of uh, core structure of uh, local government. And so the one thing that I've noticed uh, that both of you have mentioned in efforts of reform is the depoliticization of decisions at the local level. Is that is it pretty well established that that's better? I mean, uh, it seems intuitively that it would be better, but do we have any, uh, what's the, do we know, or do, you, do either of you know off the top of your head um, the evidence about, have these reforms, I mean, I think Ann mentioned there was a little bit of pushback on some of the reforms, is removing is depoliticizing as part of reform been helpful or is or is the evidence more showing that when it is more political, the citizenry are more responsive and more motivated to engage with their government? I mean, is there do we know empirically which one of those is true? Uh, so I go ahead. Rob. I'm going to push back. I'm going to push back a little bit on the, on the question, right, because this is, uh, a, this, is a, this is a values question, right? This yeah. is. Uh, yep. Whether it's better or not depends on on what you care about, right? Uh, so if we're talking about pure efficiency, um, then then I think we have some evidence to suggest that yes, if you have 
um, professional staff in a council manager form of government, you can accomplish things um, in a more professional and efficient manner than if you have someone who runs for office, right? America can be anybody, right? You could have a local doctor or, or you know, anybody run for, for office when they don't really know how to do a budget or, or you know, pave a road or whatever it is that they need to do. Um, and having a professional staff can get that done faster and, and, and on budget. Um, but if we care about uh, transparency, accountability, sort of democracy more generally, that you know, achieving higher levels of, of democracy, if we can say that, um, is often moving in the exact opposite direction than achieving higher levels of efficiency. Uh, and so to say one is better than the other kind of depends on what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, that's a, that's a theme from this course and from the podcast is thinking carefully about what we mean by better and what types of things we're trying to maximize or improve. And to your point, a lot of these, what we've been talking about is they come down to ethical questions. What do we, which do we value more? Do we value things being done well at a cheaper cost or that they are as democratic as possible? What, what were you going to say on this, Ann? Yeah, I, I'm, I like Rob's answer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it truly is, it's a function. I mean, the, I think the kind of, kind of the cool thing is that you can have each of these, both of these structures. And so uh, it is not uncommon for cities to adjust their structures. So you see some cities that have had a city manager system um, uh, change and go to a strong mayor system and others that have been traditionally strong mayor adopt a city manager. And then there are hybrid versions of this as well, where you have both. I mean, the city of Oakland, California has both a manager and a strong mayor. Um, which is kind of interesting as, in, as, as they engage in a power struggle. When they're on the same page, it's great. Everything works. When they're at loggerheads, um, it, it begins to be a problem. But, but the point is, tinkering with structure or, or adjusting structure does seem to have some, uh, some consequences for how local government performs. Excellent. I have another question here I want to take, and then I want to, once we get through this question, I want to shift the conversation to we talked about reform leading up to now, but what are some of the issues outside of the political structure that, it, that cities are facing that might be interesting for the viewers to hear about? We have a question from Kim Chao Kim, and uh, Kim Chao uh, is asking here, he says, in South Korea's case, local public enterprises, which are under local governments, are actually not earning well, as we keep focus on publicness than entrepreneurship generally. Uh, uh, as they do not seem to get at the same time what could be a reasonable way for America's local governments in getting fiscal soundness? And so I think what Kyung Chow is interested here is um, enterprises don't seem to be a way to boost the finances of a city. And he's kind of implying here that cities have some fiscal stress with some regularity and how might we make them more sound? So maybe just quick, uh, quickly, are cities in some type of financial trouble in different places and what are some strategies that cities have used to uh, to balance their budgets and get to a more fiscally sound place? Big question. Who wants it? <laughs> uh, I guess I guess I'll take this. So, um, uh, first of all, uh, enterprises generally um, can and and are being used as a way to diversify revenues and therefore increase uh, uh, fiscal sustainability. Right. So so one of the, the options for becoming more fiscally sustainable is to have a more diversified revenue 
portfolio. And so when something, when the economy goes down and consumer spending goes down, and so your sales tax revenue goes down, um, if you are not as dependent on that one source of revenue, then you can weather that storm uh, a little more. And so if you are generating water from, uh, or generating uh, revenues from water, as well as property taxes, as well as fees, um, and the sales tax, then then you're not as dependent. If that's your only tax, then you're more dependent. So so one uh, diversifying revenue streams can be uh, a way to do that. Um, to answer your sort of your broader question, as as you framed it, Justin, yes, there are lots of cities in distress, <laughs> that, and how they're dealing with that. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of different options on the table. Some of them are working better than others, right? Um, and, and it really comes down to um, balancing long-term obligations, right? And short-term, uh, so long-term and short-term obligations with various types of revenue streams, right? So your city may be able to, you know, keep the lights on and keep the streets paved um, and keep police forces out, but are they able to pay all their pension obligations? Are they able to repay all the debt that they took on to um, to fund all their infrastructure improvements or, or whatever the case is. Um, in some extreme cases, um, they may not be able to keep the lights on or, or keep the police on the streets. And in those cases, we're, we're, we're talking about a different ball game. Um, and, uh, and they're almost forced into either looking for uh, new revenue streams, increasing the ones that they have, or asking the state to step in um, to provide more funds for certain types of activities. Uh, and and so you know we could talk about some of those extreme cases if, if we wanted to go that direction. Um, the, the something flashed up. Did he have a follow up? Um, yeah, he uh, his follow up to that was uh, regarding uh, the deport uh, the the deportized reform. He can add South Korea's case, which is another case. Um, uh, as local governments are generally quite overwhelmed by central government. In this case, local government's fiscal soundness generally follows regional economies. It means that wherein there is a depoliticalized government reform, it would be a little bit more problematic for relatively not wealthy states. And so um, I think he's uh, highlighting here uh, that a lot of it depends on the regional economy. Yeah, yeah so I want to yeah. jump in there. Sorry, Rob. My turn. No, please. <laughs> um, so uh, in my class, I have students reading a book about Detroit. So you were talking about extreme cases. The extreme case, right? Eighteen billion with a B uh, dollars in debt, um, and the, in the, again, the, the the state seized control of the operation of Detroit government, put in an emergency manager who was able to negotiate um, uh, through through the bankruptcy court, uh, was able to negotiate a, a settlement, and, uh, and 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 one of the big issues was, of course, pension obligations. Detroit has has more people receiving pensions from the city than they actually have working in city government. And, and this obligation is only growing and becoming more of a burden to, to, the, to the city. But one of the ways they were able to negotiate this, it, it was really kind of interesting. The state uh, kicked in, I don't know, several hundred million dollars. Um, uh, local foundations, I mean, there, there are a number of very well-funded and well-capitalized local foundations uh, generated revenue uh, for, for the city, basically pitched in to help the city. But then the other thing that that's the one I wanted to mention was the city um, was willing to sell some of its assets. 
So, you know, for example, uh, there's there's um, uh, city parking garages that are that are generate revenue streams. The city was willing to, in the, in this case, create public-private partnerships and and interact with with private sector um, uh, actors on this. The state came in and took up a number of these things. They were talking about selling the Detroit Institute of Art, which is a you know major. Um, a major enterprise that, this, that the city did have is now does not own anymore. But but it was interesting about the way to value some of their assets and actually use them as a way of selling them basically, um, or 99 you know 99 year leases to um, to operate uh, toll booths on a on a tollway uh, to the private to the private sector. And kind of key to that just again to wrap it up with Detroit. It really is a function of the of the of the local economy or the regional economy, and and the challenge for Detroit is it's 138 square miles. Um, the uh, uh, jobs have left, uh, manufacturing has left, the people have left. The city was once 1.8 million people; it's now 700,000 people. I mean, it's it's a city in in decline. Um, and the question is whether regional entities, other governments in the region. Uh, county government, other suburban governments will actually join in a regional effort to try to um, revitalize the entire area, not just the central city of Detroit, but also uh, the entire area. And it's tough to get uh, some of these uh, folks to uh, partner up with the declining city government. Yeah, I, I can imagine. So building from that, so that Detroit's an interesting city, mm -hmm. I think, to then jump from and think about what types of problems cities today that are doing well have to worry about. So Detroit, to your point, was, I mean, was 1.7 million was the kind of the pride of American capitalism and the American worker um, for a long time. And then as, uh, I don't know the whole story to Detroit, but I as, a, as those uh, industries went into decline, there were fewer jobs, um, there's fewer uh, the economy weakens and then it becomes kind of a pile on effect. Um, what, what types of things should cities be thinking about and worried about, or what's, what's facing cities right now in 2017? I mean, that's a really wide thing given all the local governments, but what, what types of broad issues are cities facing to today? Financial ones taking on, uh, lots of debt is one and pensions is another. So what types of things, and maybe start with you, Anne, are cities experiencing right now that are causing managing them and developing them to, to be a challenge? Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, uh, we, we would have to say something about finances, but I'm going to let that go because we've talked about finances a lot, but, but we would certainly have to say that. I mean, one of the, the, the things that people say is that local governments are, you know, basically at the bottom of the fiscal food chain that uh, – um, they, it, it, without, without a strong local economy, it is very difficult for a city to flourish. So, you know, the, the, that tax base is so important. So, okay, that goes without saying. So it's just been said. So sorry for that. Um, but the, the, um, there are a number of issues and, and, you know, it's kind of, I'm kind of thinking about where to start with these. I would probably say something like, um, resource depletion. So if you're a city in the Southwest or you're a city uh, in the West in general, uh, you've got to worry about water. You've got to worry about the supply of water, water quantity, water quality less so. Some cities have to worry about water quality, but but water quantity and, and the depletion of that resource strikes me as uh, something that cities need to be worried about now uh, because they're going to be hit by it um, uh, in, you know, within within 
well, it depends on the place, but within 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. An example of that would be the city of San Antonio and its efforts to build a pipeline to uh, the county just west of Brazos County to actually get water from that county to satisfy the demand for water in San Antonio, which is a good, what, 150 miles away. So, um, so resource, resource issues would be, the, would be where I would start. And what is, I imagine a lot of that has to do with the changing climate as well, right? I mean, parts of Texas were dry anyways, but now are experiencing record droughts and, um, uh, and then coastal cities. I mean, th there's, their issues uh, are different, but with flooding and disrupting resources and damage there as well. I mean, I know on the cities like Miami are experiencing just regular flooding as a result of kind of, uh, as a result of rising water. Yeah, I mean, there's interesting work being done on sea level rise in the San Francisco Bay, for example, and the impact that would have on the city. So, yeah, a lot of it is cl uh, climatic conditions uh, and their impact um, in the near and long term. Uh, so I'm going to cheat a little bit and right. tell you. Uh, tell you what the uh, mayors think the biggest issue is. So uh, I can I can send you this link uh, and you can you can post it up um, in the, yeah, in the class if you want. The National League of Cities did a, a survey in 2017, a uh, survey of, of mayors around the country and asked them what issues they think are the biggest ones facing them. Uh, and so I can give you the numbers here. Economic development, 66%. Uh, that was the number one um, issue that, that mayors thought was important. Public safety was second at 64 followed by infrastructure at 43, budgets also at 43, housing 42%, education 36%, energy and the environment, which we were just talking about, 24%, um, and then health demographics and data and technology sort of rounded out the list of, of sort of issues that, that mayors were worried about um, as, of, as of 2017. Um, That's from so, the National League of Cities? National League of Cities, yes. All right. Uh, just on that, while while you pulled up that, what are some good, um, what are some, for people who want to learn more about things facing cities, are there some national uh, organizations or national professionalizations that if people are interested in learning what the most recent research on cities, I know uh, Governing Magazine covers a lot of state and local issues. What other associations or websites might people be able to access that would give them information on cities? Well, you know, Justin, the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University is an excellent place to come <laughs> learn about cities and that's what like, that's that we're on. I no, love I, that. I, no, I thought we need a plug, right? No? Okay, sorry. Um, so, no, you're, you're absolutely So, Governing Magazine is a good place. Um, I know you're doing the podcast. There's a, a, a recent podcast called um, – oh, uh, GovLove, I think I'll send I'll, I'll send you a couple of links um, that the uh, ICMA puts out regular. Um, What's of, ICMA? Uh, the International City County Management Association um, okay. puts out regular articles and and has some some um, uh, more popular media type uh, articles on on local government issues. Um, and so between between those, I, I imagine you you get some of the, the bigger points. Yeah, let me also throw in, uh, ICMA Smart Brief is another one because they do a, it's kind of a survey. It is, it's a kind of the um, hot issues in different communities around the country. Um, that's, that's, that's also a good one. The other place I would look would be City Lab, which is a, um, uh, an online uh, publication, if you will, of uh, the Atlantic Magazine. And they've got some really cool stuff and smart stuff going on with, um, with City Lab. So I think that would be a great resource as well. 
Yeah, Brookings Institute does um, a lot of urban policy and uh, the Lincoln Institute does a lot of sort of land-based policy stuff. Both of those are good think tanks um, that, that put out good research. Yeah, and if you do anything involving Brookings, you have to use the word regional because that's what it's all about. It's all about regions. Solution to everything is regionalize. Regionalize. Yep. Okay, we only have a few minutes left and I want to ask a, a question that I'm not sure that there'll be a straightforward answer to, but I'd like to put to both of you anyways, which is what should, what should cities be doing if economic growth is their major concern or economic development? Um, what can cities be doing to ensure a quality future for their city? If it's a lot of it's based on economic development and the tax base, what factors should, should should people be pushing their local governments to uh, be doing well? Are there, uh, again, these things are, as we've talked about, there's so much variance, I'm not sure if they will be broad takeaways or not. But are there some things that maybe people should avoid that we know don't work well for cities on average? There's some broad kind of advice. Would you like to, I think uh, Rob grabbed the first one, uh, last one first, Anne, would you like to jump in? Sure, I'd um, you know, uh, get Amazon um, uh, HQ too. That's a solution to any city's <laughs> jobs, and uh, and you're cool, right? Right. Uh, city of San Antonio <laughs> clearly said they didn't want it. They that's were right. very yeah. They came out that, very strong against yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's that's cute. Um, yeah, the city <laughs> did want it. Yeah, the uh, the two hundred and some, uh, and they're they're now down to twenty, which is kind of interesting. But um, economic development is, of course, uh, a major feature, and the. Um, I mean, I was going to joke and say what cities should do is uh, chase industry with all sorts of incentives that bankrupt the uh, bankrupt the city ultimately. Uh, but I would be very facetious and sarcastic if I said that. Um, yeah, economic development is the key issue, um, as we heard, and certainly the mayors uh, the mayors would agree with that. Um, it's how to do economic development smartly, right? Is it the model of someone like Richard Florida who says uh, you need to um, uh, you know have a talent? have talent, technology, and tolerance. That's the key to being a, the city of the future. Um, so, you know, everybody should be like Austin, Texas, let's say. Um, I mean, what, it, it's, it's really kind of a, it, it's really kind of an interesting question about, about what cities should do. So I'll just go back to my Detroit case one more time. The book I have students reading had a, had a, a chapter in it written by a neo-Marxist, right? So how often does that happen? And, and the neo-Marxists really challenged the point about economic development. And his whole point is we spend way too much talking about time talking about economic development. What we should be talking about is marginalized populations and how they are going to survive uh, in the future. You know, that, that kind of a thing and kind of shifting the conversation. But it's, but it's very hard to say that because a city does depend so heavily on its, its local tax base to survive that economic development has to be uh, something that cities have to do. The question is how to do it smartly, mm -hmm. right? So you don't end up, you know, you don't end up in some in city in insidious or invidious competition that uh, ends up um, not benefiting the city at all. Um, you know, uh, so maybe we should do some talk about something like tax base sharing or something like that, which, by the way, Brookings would like. So. <laughs> so I, I, I will sort of uh, clarify the the reason that that Anne started to uh, to make a joke and 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 re realize that that maybe it wouldn't come across wouldn't land that well uh, is is because the, the overwhelming majority of cities do use these tax incentive based policies and and it's a large 
percentage of their entire economic development activity is devoted to giving uh, tax breaks or incentives to get companies to move to their cities, right? And if you're following the uh, Amazon headquarters, second headquarter chasing that's been going on, the amount of money that cities are willing to forego or straight up give a company like Amazon to get 50,000 high paying tech jobs is is really quite stunning. Uh, you, they, they will give up a lot to get something like that. Um, and so we can, that same thing happens on a much smaller scale every day. Cities are offering incentive packages to companies to relocate into their, their jurisdiction or to stay, right? Because other company, other cities are offering them incentives to move away. And so they have to match to get them to stay. Um, and uh, frankly, the, the research on, on all of this is not favorable to those, those policies. It's, there's not a lot of evidence that these work in generating long run economic development gains for cities that go all in on these these tax incentive uh, strategies. Um, and so sort of without, without going too far into all the different options, right? One thing, one general sort of takeaway could be that uh, more diversified portfolio of strategies in how you approach economic development is advisable, right? So maybe you do some tax incentive based uh, attraction policies, but a very narrow sort of focus on that. But you combine that with um, a lot of uh, entrepreneurship and sort of trying to lo grow local businesses, a lot of job training and trying to increase the um, skills and labor pool the, of, of the citizens that are already living in your district. Um, you can, I know, I know you had Kent on the podcast talking about sustainable policies and how you create sort of uh, smart cities or smart growth, right? And a lot of that can be, be done through zoning and, and different types of, of regulations on building and housing and things like that. So um, if you have a more, so if you have a wide range of things that you're doing and you don't put all your eggs in one basket and that basket is giving a lot of money to companies to move to your city, then, then um, research suggests you, you will be better off. All right. And the final thing is I want to give you an opportunity, both of you, since you are both big local government fans to say to the listeners, why local government is so important because I think it gets overlooked in a lot of the discussions. I overlooked it mostly, honestly, till I met the two of you and you convinced me of the importance. So give just a one minute spill. Maybe each of you will st uh, start with Robin and close us out on the importance of paying attention to what's going on in your city and paying attention to being involved at the local level. Wow. Well, you could have, you could have warned me that this question was coming. I could have had something profound <laughs> prepared on um, the spot <laughs> no okay all right so off the top of my head right um uh, the policies and sort of government interactions that you are seeing and facing on a day-to-day -day basis um, are overwhelmingly local government issues right when you drive to get to work or even before you get to work when you turn on the water in the morning to brush your teeth that's a local government service Right. When you drive to work, that's a local government service while you're at work. Right. And the you know, your trash is collected. That's a local government service. Right. So so every day and for the majority of your day, you're interacting at some level um, with a, a local government um, of some type. Right. And we've talked about the variety of types and it may not be your city. Right. But you're but you're being serviced by a variety of local governments. 
And um, and you may just not realize it, right? You may take it for granted until something goes wrong, right? And so we spent a lot of time and energy, um, and and not saying this is wrong, but we spent a lot of time and energy uh, worrying and arguing over national level policies that are important but may not affect our day to day lives. Whereas most and many local government policies do affect your day to day life. So if that's my sort of one sales pitch, is matter because uh, when it goes wrong. It really goes wrong and it'll ruin your whole day <laughs> or your week or your month or in the case of Houston, your year. Right. Uh, so so it, it does matter. All right. Thank you, sir. And OK. And my my comment would follow up directly on that. So that was so that's a great segue in that uh, it's at the local level. You can do something about it. I mean, it's very hard to influence policy and what Congress is doing. Who knows? I mean, and, and at the state level as well. But local government is the level of government where you can have an impact, where an in individual can go to a city council meeting or a county commission meeting and speak for three minutes or five minutes, whatever it might be, and actually have an impact on the policies that are adopted by that local government. It's much easier to mobilize folks uh, over a local issue that affects them directly, as, as Rob was saying. Um, it, so it's easier to mobilize and sustain that mobilization. Um, and it's a place where you can have impact. So local government does matter. It affects your daily life, as, as Rob said. Um, and I think part two of that is you can actually you can actually make a difference at the local government level uh, in the policies that are adopted, the ordinances that are adopted um, in, in more in line with your preference than you could ever do at the state or national level. I completely agree. For good sales pitches. All right. Well, I uh, promised you, Ann, we would uh, be in right at nine o'clock so you could get on home. Thanks so much for staying late and doing with this uh, with us. Rob, thanks so much for calling in as well. This is the first time uh, it's been a table, a round table talk with two people. And this was a lot of fun and I thought it went really well. So um, thanks so much uh, to both of you for coming out tonight. Is there any um, if people are interested in following your work or following you on social media, um, uh, Ann and then Rob, is there some place where people can find more information about your work or what you do? Hmm. You yeah, you know, I'm not exactly social media gal. Um, and as you, as you indicated, since my name comes up as Maria on the, <laughs> on the screen. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I guess I'd say come and chat with me. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, um, uh, interact with me via email. Uh, that would probably be the easiest thing. And your information is on the Bush School website? Yeah, which, I have some information on the Bush School website, sure. But I don't have my own personal website. Um, apparently, I do have a LinkedIn thing, and I've got to find out what the password is so I can deactivate that account because people want to link, and I don't know who they are. So do not do that. No LinkedIn. We can set you up social media and your own webpage if you like. Yeah, thanks. No. Uh, I'm old school on this. No. This is about as advanced as I'm getting right here. Yeah. But this has been fun. Thank you, Justin. Uh, thank you. And Rob? Um, uh, no, I, I, you can contact me through all my contact information is on the Bush School website. I'm also on Twitter uh, at Rob Greer one so you can find me there uh, as well. So um, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you, uh, Justin, for hosting. And um, it was great. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. All sure. right? Sounds good. All right. All right. Have a great night. Thank you. All right, thanks. All right, go Gators. Oh, goodness, you snuck that in there. Ah, no. <laughs> Good night, Ann. All right. Night. So, yeah. Thanks for coming out tonight. All right, definitely. It's been fun. Yeah.